So one of the working basic principles that I've been working on is the idea that implementing frameworks around AI is going to be a lucrative business for small business technology consultants. Am I right? Let's talk to NYU Stern professors Juliet Powell and Art Kleiner, co-authors of The AI Dilemma, on this bonus episode of The Business of Tech. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Juliet Art, thanks for joining me today. I'm super excited for our conversation. Well, me too. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Very much. So I got to start with with the basic. What inspired you to write and work together on a book called The AI Dilemma? And, and how did the collaborations come about? I took care of my mom for uh, the last years of her life. And at the end of it, if you've ever experienced anything like that, you know, it's it's very, very traumatic. And so I wanted to put my head down and learn something. So I went back to school, got my degree at Columbia, uh, wrote a dissertation with the promise to myself that if I was going to invest all this time, all this money in something that, you know, people at Columbia told me was very, very boring. Who cares about responsible AI? Well, I did. And so the promise to myself was that I would be able to turn my dissertation into a book. And I turned to Art. We had collaborated before when he was at PwC and the editor-in-chief of Strategy and Business Magazine. And I said, what do you think, Art? Um, you know, is this even legible? And well, the, the rest is history. Art, what, what did you say to me? Well, I said, I think you have a book here. I was working with business and technology book publishers, and it was clear this was not just a book about AI at a very prescient moment, but it was a book that people needed to hear. So um, I said that to you, Juliet, and you said, would you like to co-author it with me? One of the best decisions <laughs> I've ever made was to say <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, here we are. Well, so let's start with the basics. Walk me through the seven principles of responsible technology that, that you propose. Well, we started with risk. I think that as we were um, laying out the kind of the, the structure of the book, it was very, very clear that the AI Bill of Rights that was coming out of the United States uh, was very much in its preliminary phase, that blueprint. And at the same time, the Artificial Intelligence Act coming out of the EU was much more formed and really based on risk. And I thought that that was a really interesting idea. And so the first principle, uh, I think Art wanted to call it do no harm, as in, um, you know, the medical practice. But that didn't really seem like the right approach, because I think that most of the engineers that I know, most of the corporate people that I know, most of the governmental people that I know that are using these technologies are doing it from a place of wanting to benefit as many people as possible. They have really great intentions. So rather than saying do no harm, it's kind of like saying do no evil. You can change that at any, at any point. The question is, can we be intentional about our risk to humans in particular? And so I came up with the whole calculus of intentional risk around that, that 
isn't even in the book yet. So that might be book two. Um, Art, what was the second principle that you came up with? Well, most of the other principles came from our talking with software engineers and people doing, you know, technical work for clients. So they often reflected the things, you know, people working with small companies, large companies came across as they started to implement um, basic digital tech and then AI in particular. So the second one has to do with openness. We called it open the closed box. Is the system transparent? Do you get the information you need about how the data was gathered and how it was put together? And are you able to query the company? What is the company's policy around the um, transparency of uh, sometimes its trade secrets, which now may have to be um, open to the world at large? There is a principle around bias, confront and question the bias that exists in any human endeavor and now is being codified and automated by AI. There's a question about who owns the data. Probably a lot of uh, IT engineers are thinking about, you know, when we gather data, what liability do we have? And that principle addresses the fact that it should go when possible to the source, the person with personal data, the business with whose data is being gathered, and there should be mechanisms in place, including AI-based mechanism for overseeing and tracking where the data comes from. There is a principle around the accountability. Anybody involved should be thinking about, you know, what the outcomes are and be held responsible for it. We're starting to see legislation emerge and executive orders emerge to that effect. Uh, there's a principle about what kinds of organizations are best equipped to handle AI which includes, you know, organizations that aren't so tightly coupled that it's hard for them to make uh, diverse decisions and or, you know, to, to roll with the punches and, and, and move quickly when need to. And then there's a principle, our last principle, Juliet, I'll pass it back to you, is on uh, creative friction. Yeah, and creative friction is actually something that I learned in my previous career in television. And then again, working with, you know, large organizations like Intel Labs or even Cirque du Soleil, Pixar uses this. Um, X, which is a subdivision of Alphabet Google, uses this. And this idea of creative friction is really about bringing in cross-disciplinary people, but people that have very diverse backgrounds. So I'm not just talking about race. I'm not just talking about uh, gender. We're talking about diversity of thought, diversity of culture, uh, people that went to school, people that are self-taught, you know, a cross section of, of what the population actually looks like um, so that you can better develop technology for more people. And of course, when you have more different perspectives, you've got way more pushback. People ask far more questions. It takes longer to deliberate. And that can be incredibly frustrating. And if you think about it, most of the tools that we are um, using AI for specifically to remove the friction in our lives. So why would we want to increase more friction? Well, there's this wonderful professor at Columbia University, David Stark, who did a study on Wall Street, and then he did another one and found similar results on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, which was he looked at teams, the most productive teams, the highest earners, essentially. And guess who they were? Yeah, you probably did guess it based on the whole tenet of the seventh principle. It was the most diverse teams that took the longest, but they produced the most and they made the most money. And if I look at the companies that are using creative friction in their teams, well, think about X and how advanced they are in terms of AI from a global perspective. 
I think they're doing quite well. But one of the things that they're doing that many companies are not doing is that they're thinking in the longer term. When we talk about moonshots, that's not happening next quarter, right? So different timelines for different practices. You know, it's encouraging to hear that the research backs up what I've been inve- been thinking about, that, that, that diverse teams produce better results because they understand their customer base better and, and shake out those ideas. So it's nice to hear the, the, the research validating that. I want you guys to, to help me with a, with a thought that I've been forming in this space that it makes a lot of sense for large companies and the companies that are building the AI technologies that they're going to invest heavily in thinking about these frameworks. But ultimately, everyone who's in business that's implementing AI at all needs to do this in order to make sure that they're doing it well. And my premise that I'd like you to res- to get your sense of is, is that particularly for smaller companies, they're going to need to work with their technology partner to do that work. What, what's your take on that premise? I agree. I mean, ultimately, I'd love to hear what you think, Art, um, but my basic response is I completely agree. And I would say even further that both partners have to learn how to do a calculus of intentional risk around artificial intelligence by case and specifically looking at, you know, what the larger implications are to reputation, also to lawsuits, and ultimately, how well are you insured? things that you need to think about are well a lot of small businesses think they're used to creative friction because they're family businesses so (laughs) they're used to taking all sides around a dinner table and they think you know i i come a lot of my extended family were business people of that sort so i'm used to the arguments and that's not the same as the expertise and in a lot of cases, generative AI in particular is deceptively easy. You know, it's being designed to make us think we can move forward. And then we, you know, we, we lose sight of the misinformation, you know, the hallucinations, the degradation of, of data quality over time. So companies have to learn, even the smallest company has to learn what's good data and what's not good data in its automated systems and in making decisions. That's probably where, you know, people listening to this can make the most difference by coming in and coming up with almost like a data protocol or, a, you know, a series of steps. But also security protocol. As you know, yeah. cybersecurity is far more um, top of mind when we're talking about generative AI. And it's really important for mom and pop shops to understand to what extent your secret sauce um, when you're using a third-party uh, generative AI tool, is likely going to be capturing your data and using it. And where it pops up, nobody knows, and you don't want to go through the whole, you know, rigmarole of trying to sue your mom and pop. You want to, right, forge ahead for the next generation. So I do think that having advisors, trusted partners, is incredibly important. Yeah, I th- and I think you've just described completely an entire service offering <laughs> that, that our partner, that, that listeners should be talking about. Is is there a particular set of kind of real world examples of systems that are using these principles effectively, and and what can we take away from that? I think there are many systems that are using many of them. I think it's rare to find anyone using all of them, and that's because the technology is still emerging and still evolving. 
Uh, I think, you know, in particular, there are a lot of companies now looking at data ownership and data, you know, the, 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 the governance of, you know, the internal governance and then regulatory compliance over whose data is safe to use. Is it copyrighted? Is it representative of the world around them? So that's some pl one place. And I also think the risk considerations that you mentioned, Juliet, are increasingly part of practice. And we're seeing pro people developing protocols for that. Everybody's doing it their own way. And I think a lot of that is going to be standardized over the next couple of years. But to specifically answer your question, I mentioned X again because, and again, the division of Alphabet Google, specifically because they have at their helm Astro Teller. I've known Astro for, my gosh, 20 years. Um, he's like my brother from another mother. And he taught me so many basic principles of being a good human. And I... I've really seen, I know several people that work with him, uh, Dave Andre, Vostavoric, just champions of wanting to do the right thing for the right reasons for the most amount of people in the world. So uh, we ran a think tank together for many, many years. And so the practices, again, that we put in the book, the principles that we put in the book, in many ways are coming, yes, from consulting, but also from evolving these principles over time with um, some of these people. And so I think that X is definitely implementing um, most of the things that we're talking about in the book. I think that um, recently I had the opportunity to go to the Lincoln Center here in New York and I saw the Malcolm X opera, Life and Times of Malcolm X. And I was amazed. Honestly, I hadn't been there in a very, very long time. And I was amazed by the fellows that I met that were, um, they are heads of nonprofits across the, the five boroughs and Manhattan. And they're going through a, a two-year fellowship where they're learning how to, I don't know, I guess, work in the performing arts and specifically how to raise large amounts of money for them. And what they're doing is then they're, they're, they're placing them on the board of uh, the Lincoln Center, which is an incredibly powerful position to be in. And at the same time, you're looking at the programming, which is more and more an integration of both in-person as well as virtual performances, interactive performances. They've got Bina 48 that's coming in in the spring, um, which is an amazing chatbot based on a real African-American woman. Uh, they've got Nona Hendricks who's putting on a whole interactive show. And what they did is they called in the community in which they live in and they asked them what they want to see more of. And so that, that creative friction, that addition of perspectives, um, I'm really seeing it kind of come through in two very different industries. Um, but those are just kind of shining examples that come to the top of my head. My thinking is that the more a business does well at this, at, at these principles and any ethical framework and responsible AI framework, I think it'll end up being a competitive advantage because they'll be better at executing here. But I'd be curious to get a sense from you all, particularly with, with the talk of regulation that you, you brought up. The EU is putting theirs together. We now have the Biden executive orders trying to give us framework. How much of, of these, of, of the principles and approach do you think need to be regulated? And how much of it do you think is left to free market for competitive advantage? It depends where you live. 
<laughs> Art, I'll, I'll let you speak because I know you, you were about to say something and I'm sure it's profound. Well, I, there are a few different types of regulation at stake. I mean, there's some businesses regulating businesses. For instance, Salesforce is an example of, you know, if you don't comply with a basic level of responsibility in the way you use AI, you can lose your license. And your data, the way, and I think one of the reasons why that one is so important, and you you probably know about this, I learned through a bunch of systems engineers that are literally looking at the data um, that's going through the servers and seeing just the most horrible, horrible things. We're talking about human trafficking. Uh, we're talking about pedophilia, just the, the worst side of humanity if you will. So for a company like Salesforce to put their foot down and say, hey, you are not allowed to use our technology and our systems for these purposes, I think is really powerful and important. The EU AI Act is going to do something very similar and they could fine you 6% of your global annual revenues. They are prepared to ban some products or send in auditors on some products, which to my knowledge has never been done with technology before. You know, tech auditors. The premise here is not just that we're going to, you know, prevent our data or our software from being used, but that we're going to help you build the better habits, uh, almost like a forcing function. And that is, you know, that's something that tech and government have, you know, through since the industrial revolution have tried to kind of work out and we're, we're seeing it again. So I'd be curious to know what you think businesses need to do almost before being ready to, to tackle this. Because you put forth the, the principles and you've got a really great framework for thinking about it. But there's probably a couple of things they need to do before that to even be ready to have that conversation. Is there a short list of things that you think that they, they've got to get done to be ready to talk about this? Psychological safety. I think is is incredibly important in any organization uh, for all the reasons that you would imagine, but specifically around AI to have people being able to speak up and talk about the potential uh, negative consequences is really, really important before a project ever gets designed, let alone deployed. Uh, I think that having those negative scenarios in mind while you're coding and while you're collecting data, creating the model, et cetera, makes all the difference in the world. Art, I, I, you and I have spoken, you know, well, <laughs> ad nauseum about this, but I, I'd love to get your take. Well, we, we start often with a company by talking about an audit, a self audit. You know, where, where are, where is your data coming from? What AI systems do you have in place? How do those interface with your digital systems? What opportunities are you missing? Et cetera. These are things that an IT consultant is probably now coming up to speed with. And we're developing a template for doing that. And some of it has to do with, you know, what are the biases you don't see by definition? What are the, <laughs> what are the practices and outcomes that you're not paying attention to? How can we speed up the process of thinking about them without losing the quality of thought and analysis, which is where the psychological safety comes in. And ultimately, a lot of this is organiz you know, basic organizational change, but now we're working with tech people to say, how do you communicate this to people who are not used to talking the way that you do? who come from different backgrounds, making business decisions as opposed to engineering decisions. 
And in what kinds of conversations can we quickly become comfortable with the shared language? And one other point that's come up time and time again is that there is a lack of conversation that happens on the organizational side between the systems engineer and the C-suite specifically about some of the issues with the data that they're seeing. And um, there's a reason for that. And what we're seeing is that, you know, there are multiple logics that are essentially what AI is powered by, right? So you've got the corporate logic, which is all about making profits and making sure that, you know, it's it's giving back to its constituents constituents, um, as well as society, hopefully. Uh, We've got the governmental logic, which is all about, you know, really taking care of its citizens and making sure that bad actors don't hurt us here and abroad. And then we've got the engineering logic, which is just really about efficiency, right? We want elegant, simple solutions that are very straightforward and that make life easier for everyone. Ease of use is very important. And then the social justice logic, which is about um, making sure that we are building these tools for the majority of humans rather than for, you know, the arms race or rather than for the tech race, right? Are we really building this for us as humans or is it just for a certain subset of us? So I think when you think about um, how to regulate these things, whether we're talking about self-regulation at the organizational level or, you know, at a governmental level, I think it's really, really important to keep all four logics in mind, right? You can't just Think about the corporate space or the governmental space or, you know, both of those and the engineers and completely forget about, you know, the people that are protesting in the streets. You probably remember the tech revolt back in 2017, 18. I mean, people all over the world that worked in big tech coming up and saying, you know what, this is not what I signed up for. When you've got your social justice side in one individual that's kind of ramming against your engineering mind, and you also happen to be the founder of the organization, it's really challenging, but you want to be able to respect all of these sides to make better decisions. Everything you've just said sort of rhymes thematically with stuff we've seen before. When you talk about auditing, that's something that we've seen a lot in IT service delivery, this is thematically the same as digital transformation. So it's really encouraging to hear actually at some level that the skills we've already have apply here too. So this has been, been really interesting. Are there particular resources that I can point people at that if they're interested in learning more can uh, can find out more about what you're up to? Uh, well, definitely you can come check out our website, which is kleinerpowell.com. Um, check out our book. If you can't afford it, just reach out to us and we'll make sure that you get a copy. That's really important. And then finally, if you want to read another book, um, and especially for those that are are using computer vision specifically for security, um, I think it might be worth reading something like Joy Bolemi's book. Uh, it just came out for Halloween. And she was the MIT researcher that um, had literally had to put a white mask on her face. She's an African-American woman. She had to put a, a white mask on her face so that she could program her robot, right? Her robot that she had built to see her. It's really, really worth uh, checking out her work. And she's also got a documentary out there. We'd love to talk to you if anybody's interested in figuring out the calculus of intentional risk around generative AI specifically. I think it's really, really worth 
um, doing a calculation, a risk benefit calculation that again is not just about the next quarter, but that applies for the medium and longer term as well with flexibility, of course, because it's all changing so fast. So they need you. <laughs> well, listeners, that right there, there's your service offering. So Juliet Art, thanks for joining me. This has been really interesting and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dave. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. The Business of Tech is written and produced by me, Dave Sobel, under ethics guidelines posted at businessof.tech. Like the content? Support the show at patreon.com slash mspradio or buy our Why Do We Care merch at businessof.tech. If you want to reach our listeners, visit mspradio.com slash engage. Part of the MSP Radio Network.